Do you love Uncover from CBC Podcasts? What's your favorite season? Which one did you skip? What do you want to hear more of? Help us make Uncover even better by taking our listener survey now. Visit cbc.ca slash uncover survey to make sure your voice is heard. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Connie Walker, and this is Missing and Murdered, Finding Cleo, an investigative podcast by CBC News. We just got a text message as we were driving by the casino. Gavin said, just found Sydney. He's here at the casino. So we're now going to go in and, and try to talk to the man that we think is Cleo's dad. Okay, yeah, let's go. The Gold Eagle Casino is pretty small. A little bit bigger than a school gym, but it is busy tonight. There are a few table games, but mostly it's rows and rows of slot machines. We don't know what Sydney Nicotine looks like, but we find Gavin right away. Hey, Gavin. Gavin's been keeping his eye on Sydney and points him out to us. You found somebody for us. Yeah. Where is he? He's playing at a slot machine. Gavin's given him a heads up that we want to talk to him, but I don't know how much he's explained about why we're here. Hi. Hi, I'm Connie. Oh, hi. Nice to meet you. Yeah. How are you doing? Good. Good? Uh, are you winning? There are people playing at the machines on either side of Sydney, and it's really cramped. Not an ideal place for this conversation. Could you, can we have a, buy you a coffee or something? Yeah. Yeah? Okay, well, we'll just be over here. Let us know when you're, when you're ready. Yeah. After a few minutes, Sydney comes over. He's tall, I noticed that right away. And I think of how everyone else said Cleo was tall too. So, do you live around here? Where, where Loon are you Lake. Loon Lake, how far is that? Oh, 100 miles. Sydney looks like he's in his 70s. His hair is thin and goes down to his shoulders. And it's mostly gray, including his goatee. So, so when did you meet Lillian? Did, do you remember when you I guys met? I don't remember. No? Long, long time ago. You don't, you don't remember? No? No, I don't. No. Do you, how long, how many years did you know her? Do you know? I don't know. Three, four, maybe? Yeah. It's an awkward conversation, to say the least. Sydney seems a little hesitant to talk to us, and I get it. He's here for a night out. He never expected to be peppered with questions about an ex-girlfriend from long ago and a daughter that might be his. Did you ever hear anything about her daughter, Cleo? Well, we were we were just I mean we don't know we were just hearing rumors that you might have might have um, been her dad. Maybe I don't know. You don't know. That's what she said anyway. Her name was Cleo Semaginus Nicotine. She she passed away in, in 1978. The girl. Yeah. So it's kind of hard to hear, and Sydney is a man of few words. But he says that Lillian did tell him that Cleo was his daughter. He doesn't seem phased by the news that she died. We find out Sydney is at the casino with his other daughter, Rose, and I show them both a photo of Cleo. Cleo. Yeah, that was Cleo. That's her Cleo too. Does he look like any, any of the family? Who's Winston? My son. 
Sydney seems to agree that Cleo looks a little bit like his son, Winston. Sydney seems affectionate and close with his daughter, Rose. It's strange to think that he could have also been Cleo's father, but doesn't seem to have had a relationship with her. And despite his reluctance to talk to us about it, Rose says Sydney told her about Cleo. When he told me, he said that she was hitchhiking. Yeah. And that she got hit. When did he tell you that? That was like years ago. So Rose says Sydney told her that Cleo was killed while hitchhiking. You knew that, so you knew you had a daughter? Yeah. 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 You heard she, she died? Yeah, I what, heard, yeah. What did you hear? I don't know. Because we're trying to also figure out how um, Lillian found out about it. I wouldn't even know. I tell them what we know about Cleo's death and how her other siblings are still looking for answers about why she took her own life. If we sent you a form, would you be willing to, to sign it and ask the government if they would give you information about Cleo? Yeah. Yeah? That would be really helpful, I I'd think. I'd have that... to give her that. Okay, thank you. We head back to our hotel to print off the forms that Sydney will need. It's hard to say whether or not the Saskatchewan government will actually give him any of the information they've refused to give Cleo siblings. I wonder what her ward file would tell us. The more I learn about Cleo's short life, the more curious I am about her mother, Lillian. Johnny's ward file paints a pretty bleak picture of what Lillian was like as a young mother, but I know there has to be more to it. It's hard to imagine a mother losing one child, let alone six. I've often wondered what her life was like after they left. Her nephew Wayne remembers a time when he went to visit Lillian in Saskatoon. She told me that she had heard that Cleo had died. But we were all alone. And she was really hurting. She felt bad. I do know towards the end that she told me that she loved her children and she missed them. I I think she was afraid that her kids would wouldn't forgive her or they would hate her. So I know that she I know that she was a very loving person. And I know she felt bad that she never got to show that love to her children. And, but I don't know what it was that would stop her from ever making any attempt to get them back. They kept their feelings hidden. And, I, and I've seen that a lot from a lot of residential school people. They're, they're just don't, they don't share their feelings very freely at all. It's like they're scared to. And, I, and I'm certain that she was one of them. So did it all come in one box? Christine's request for her mother's residential school records comes through, and she shares them with us. It's a big stack. We get a big stack of documents. There's one that's a school record. A couple of years of records are missing, and Lillian's name only appears 15 times. Standing in class. Fair. It says Lillian went to a residential school in Prince Albert, Saskatchewan, about three hours away from Little Pine. All of them are quarterly returns, which I think are just attendance records. There's a document called a quarterly report that lists hundreds of names of students at that school. On the very last page is student number 392, Lillian Baptiste from Little Pines Band. 
It says Lillian arrived. It says Lillian started school on October 20th, 1951, when she was seven years old. Hmm. Most of the documents are attendance records, but there is a bit of personal information about young Lillian. It says she has six brothers and four sisters. Her father was Joseph, her mother Mariah. It says the language spoken in the home is Cree. We also noticed that Sydney Nicotine attended the same school as Lillian. There's nothing in the files that really gives us a sense of what her life was like in that school, but there is one heartbreaking detail. This says total number of days, pupil in residence during quarter, 91. It appears that for six years, Lillian never went home. The residential school had to keep records of every child and how many nights they stayed at the school so they could be reimbursed by the federal government. Yeah, it's, it says total number of days pupil in residence, 73. Total number of days pupils... Lillian Baptiste was always listed as in residence every Christmas break and all summer long. Maybe her parents were allowed to come and visit, but I've heard plenty of stories of children not seeing their parents for years. So they divided the girls and the boys. This is page 21, girls. It's tragic to think that 20 years before Lillian's children were taken from her, she was taken from her parents. Once again, the government's solution was to remove Indigenous children from their parents, culture, and community. We look into Prince Albert Residential School, where Lillian grew up. In 1953, the population was 550 students, making it one of the largest schools in the country. The TRC report says the school was known as a, quote, problem establishment, saying it was overcrowded and nutritionally inadequate. The year after Lillian arrived, two teachers resigned from the school and wrote a letter condemning what they saw. The children are maltreated, cussed at. They said children were whipped and that their colleagues considered the children, quote, dirty breeds and subhuman. They apply one set of standards to whites and quite another to Indians. This is aptly expressed by the oft-used phrase, they're only Indian, anything goes. The teacher said three boys who tried to run away from the school were put in a makeshift prison. They said the children at Lillian's school were, quote, made to bear the brunt of senile sex instincts and exposed to the most brutish forms of behavior. And nothing is done to stop such proceedings. I can't imagine how growing up in this environment affected Lillian. Another student who went to the same school gave testimony for the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Every day I was told I was a dirty little Indian. And you get told that every day, every day you begin to believe that, that you are a dirty little Indian. Roderick King experienced the abuse the teachers described. Like Lillian, he was also from Little Pine and only spoke Cree when he arrived. I was punished physically, And in my mental health, a lot of the stuff was taken away from me. I found out through through my my recovery why I became 
an abuser. Not only did I abuse myself, but I abused uh, other people. I had to forgive myself. And that took a, quite a while to, to be able to do that. The federal government apologized for its role in residential schools and gave each survivor a lump sum of $10,000. I have testified and I have received compensation through this whole process, but I have never, never received any healing. If survivors were severely abused, they had to go through a hearing and describe in detail the physical, emotional, or sexual abuse they experienced as children. If they were believed by government adjudicators, they could get more money. We learned from her family that in 2014, Lillian also gave testimony about the severe abuse she experienced at the school. It was a private hearing, so we don't know the details of what she went through. All it did is open wounds that I would have been better off if they had left the way they were instead of opening them all over again. I have shed many tears through this whole process. I have become ashamed of myself all over again because of this process. I've heard time and time again how harmful reliving that trauma was for the survivors, and it must have been for Lillian too, because Christine remembers her mother asking her for support when she was going through it. She had actually called me and said, will you come and you know, hold my hand? We're finishing up, and I told her, I'm, I said, I'll come as soon as I can in May, you know, once classes are over, but, you know, that never happened, so... It sounds like it was an intense experience for her. I, yeah, I believe so. Yeah, I think that's, in my heart, I think that killed her. A few days after one of her hearings, Lillian died. She was 69 years old. You know, like, I, I tried to envision my mother, the suffering that she went through to finish residential school hearings. And then her safe place, you know, to survive that. And to take that suffering and just keep going. Is, is that part of your quest as well now, to, to find more about her and how she lived and what happened? Oh, well, I think all my answers lie in that testimony from residential school, because I know that the way she lived the rest of her life was formed by her experiences at residential school. I know in my own studies and speaking with people who've gone to residential school that, you know, that takes away your parenting skills when you have no nurturing, when you have no sense of love or, you know, somebody tending to you. That's why I lavish it on my own children, right? After Lillian's death, her children learned even more about their mother's trauma. On her funeral card, it said Lillian had another child, a boy named Miles, who died as a baby, either not long before or after Johnny was born. Lillian was a mother who lost seven children. And I know that this causes, you know, waves of intergenerational trauma. Like the trauma that you see your elders live with, even your mother, 
when you see her sitting there, you know she's in emotional pain or she's survived something horrible. You carry that with you without speaking, right? <clears throat> it's like a shadow that kind of never goes away. And that bothers me. But that was something you saw in your mom? Mm-hmm. Yeah, sometimes I'd ask her about stuff, like even about Cleo, she would just shut down. I don't want to talk about it, you're going to have to wait till I die. I'm not going to push her for that, right? There's reasons she said that. But Lillian's children approached their mother in different ways. Mark was one of the first of Lillian's kids to reconnect with her as an adult in the early 1990s. So we went and knocked on the door, I knocked on the door. She looked at me and I said, Lillian, it's Magnus? She goes, yeah. And I said... I'm your son, Mark. And she just broke down and started crying. It was, it was awesome. That was a day I'll never forget. Yeah, it was awesome. We both had to sit down and catch our breath. Mark didn't have an easy time growing up in his adoptive family. The happiness he felt being reunited with Lillian soon turned to anger at his mother for what he went through. He remembers another night when he showed up at Lillian's door. I said, why did you do what you did? Like, why did you give us up? I was drunk when I did it. I shouldn't have stopped at my mom's house, but I just tied into her. And she told me what happened. We broke down. I, I sobered up in like less than a half an hour after we started talking. I, I was pissed at her. I, uh, <laughs> and then after she told me what happened, why she did what she did, uh, and her version of it was, well, I couldn't take care of you kids. And that's all I needed to hear. This is what we read in Johnny's ward file, that sometimes Lillian voluntarily put her children in the care of social services. But it didn't say why she was having trouble or what else she was going through. Mark says that Lillian told him about something terrible that happened to her in the early 1970s. There's some shit going on in Lupine, you know, at that time. Not only just abuse of me and my siblings, but just... A lot of bad crap, right? Drinking, lots of drinking. My mom got into it. I'll I'll share a piece of information with you. Um, My mom told me that her friends, uh, this one specific man and his buddies raped her. I'm like, what? Right away, I'm mad. I'm like, tell me who. I know who now, and I want to go kick his ass because that man's still alive. I want to make him feel the pain that my mom went through the day that him and his buddies raped her. We don't know any other details about the assault. We don't know if any of the men were ever charged. But Christine says it left Lillian in a devastating situation. And then it, my birth records also indicated that my mother was hospitalized from the time she was pregnant, right? She was hospitalized. For her entire pregnancy? Pretty much. Because of, uh, then I found out from her it was because of a suicide attempt. Well, she was pregnant with me because it was an unwanted pregnancy because she was sexually assaulted and that's how I came to be. So my mother was institutionalized when she had me. And she was, she even told me herself, she kind of lost it after that. She said she's never been the same. And I understand why. So every day, every day I pray with sweet grass. 
and remind myself I'm supposed to be here. And that I have reasons to stay. But every day I pray with sweet grass and remind myself. After Christine's birth, Lillian is a mom of six kids under 10. And a few months later is the day that she fails to pick up Johnny and Cleo from the hospital after they got their tonsils out. The kids are taken into care, and a year later, after moving in and out of foster homes, all of her children are taken for good. Learning the truth about Lillian's life is devastating. I realize what a one-sided view Johnny's ward file painted about her life. Lillian grew up in an institution without her parents. She was forced to speak a foreign language and told her culture was wrong and dirty. She was subjected to abuse without any protection. And then as a young mother, she was a victim of a terrible assault and lost all of her children. I know Lillian wasn't the only residential school survivor to have her children taken. How many other mothers were going through the same thing? If you're looking for another surprising investigation into the criminal justice system, check out Bear Brook from New Hampshire Public Radio, hosted by me, Jason Moon. Bear Brook is back with an update on our second season. Jason Carroll is serving life in prison for a murder he says he did not commit. Now, the biggest development in the case in 35 years could lead us one step closer to the truth. Listen to the complete second season of Bearbrook, now available wherever you get your podcasts. We soon find someone who knows firsthand what women like Lillian were up against. We did a lot of the women's issues and family issues. I would really love to learn more from you about what you remember. My producer Jennifer is on the phone with a woman named Nora Cummings. She was the leader of the Saskatchewan Native Women's Movement in the 1970s. And we used to do a lot of workshops throughout the province of Saskatchewan. Nora is a Métis elder who was a vocal opponent of the Adopt Indian and Métis program. It's the program that started the wave of Indigenous kids being adopted into white homes in Saskatchewan. Nora starts to tell Jen a story about a woman she knew back in the 1970s who had six children who were all taken away. This woman had a nervous breakdown. She had a breakdown. Mm. And she ended up in the North Battleford Institution there. And she seemed to be such a wonderful person. And so we we decided we want to further and find out where her children were. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, can, can I just interrupt you for one minute? Because I I think that that story that you have, I think mm-hmm. we might we might be talking about the same family. Yeah, it could be. Her name was Lillian Margulis. I think that we're talking about the same person. We can't believe the coincidence. Nora knew Lillian, Cleo's mother. She says it was Lillian who inspired her to fight against the AIM program. Nora still lives in Saskatoon, so we decide to go for a visit. Continue on Saskatchewan 5 East for three kilometers. Um, so Jen and I are off to, to talk to Nora. Um, I'm, I'm really excited to actually talk to somebody 
who knew Lillian as an adult because I don't feel like we've talked to anyone who's actually um, been able to tell us what Lillian was like. But, you know, Nora is, she's in her 80s, so <clears throat> we'll have to see what, just how much she remembers. Hi, how are you? I'm Connie. Hi, I'm Nora. Nice to meet you. Turns out Nora probably has a better memory than me. She remembers Lillian well. They were very close after her children were taken away. She, she, was, she was a very strong woman because she was a type you could joke with and laugh with. Like she had that beautifulness in her. Like Nora says Lillian used to travel with her to workshops and meetings for Indigenous women in the province. One day, she went to pick up Lillian. And when she arrived, Lillian was distraught and holding a newspaper. So that morning I went to pick her up and she came out of her house and she was holding the newspaper. And she had it like this. She was crying. I said, what's wrong? She said, these are my babies. I said, your babies? I said, are you sure? And she yes, those are my babies. Honest to God, they're my babies. So she was holding a newspaper the new, that had... Saskatoon Star Phoenix, she was holding it like this. But the, but the newspaper had photographs of her children? There are pictures of, of, yeah, it was her children. It was her children. And there were AIM ads? At AIM ads. Lillian opened the paper that morning and saw a picture of her own children being advertised for adoption in an AIM ad. This is how, how we became involved with AIM then. So I had called our vice president. I said, Lillian's uh, very upset because of what I picked up this morning. Her kids are in the front paper with this AIM, adopting Nina Métis. We have to do something about this. We have to f- help her. And Nora doesn't remember which of Lillian's children was advertised in the paper that day or exactly when it was. But she says seeing them in the paper spurred Lillian into action. She was determined to get her children back. But then she got her life back together because she felt that she was going to get her children back. She wanted to fight for her children. She loved her children, and, and it was sad that her, this had happened. She, she lost out of you know, raising her children, and she never gave up. She never gave up her fight. But about, like, that day when she came out with the newspaper, like... Was she mad? Was she no, sad? No, she was just, like, um, she was very broken. Just, you know, like, uh, really humbled, and and it was sad. Very sad to see her like that. Yeah. And she held on to that paper forever, I thought. Wherever she went, she carried her little paper with her children, and she'd mm-hmm. tell people, these are my children. Nora says she and the Saskatchewan Native Women's Association began actively opposing the Adopt Indian and Métis program because of Lillian. We decided we have to stop this, has to stop, and we have to see what we can do to support her to get her children back. I would never say to her that you're going to get your children or you see your children. I would say we're going to help you because I didn't want to give hope because we never knew. I couldn't tell her because Department of Social Service had these children. They were their keepers. It didn't take long to get a meeting with the Minister of Social Services, and the group asked Lillian if she wanted to come along. And so we said, we're going to do what we can to help you, we're going to fight with you, and we're going to stand beside you. 
and we're going to bring the minister in. Are you ready to stand up for this? Are you prepared to come with us? And she said yes. And she went there that day? She was with us all. Oh, was she nervous? She was um, fear, but we had we huddled around her and we kept her very strength-wise. And all she said when she got up to him, these are my kids and you took them away from me and I want them back. I want my kids back. I am their mother. Nora doesn't have the ad of Lillian's kids, but she shows us others she's found over the years. AIM ads of children who were up for adoption, similar to the one that Lillian saw of her own kids. This one really bothered me. What, what bothered you about this one? Uh, Can you read it for us? Uh, it says, Warren became three years old in August, and he's an active boy with dark hair and sparkling brown eyes. So what are you thinking of when you see these ads? These remind me of these adoptions for little, little puppies and little kittens in the paper. To us, it was like very discriminatory. They're not only our children were apprehended, there was non-Aboriginal children that were... You never seen their pictures in the paper. It was only all our brown faces that were in there. And, 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 and the little stories that were written up. When I look at it now, I think about when you look and adopt a, a pet, they do the write-ups, and this is what this reminds me, what we were treated like. I can't imagine the shock that Lillian must have felt, just reading the paper like it was any other day, and turning the page and seeing a picture of her children. I want to try to find the photo that she saw. We leave Nora's house and go to the library to search through the archives of the Saskatoon Star Phoenix. That's when, so we were looking from September to 72 till April of 73, but we think it was probably Can somewhere. Pull these out? Can you zoom out or in? Not really. A little bit. This is, this, okay. this is real. And that one you can do, this scanner one is, is different. Jen and I look through weeks and weeks of papers. Every Tuesday, there's an AIM ad. Okay, let's see. Okay, this is the first oh. one I've seen. Three, look, it's three kids together. They're all very similar. A large photo of a cute kid and a little blurb about their personality. Lorna is a chubby little lady with dimples on her fingers, hands, knees, and toes. She has a tiny pug nose, a dainty mouth, and a uniformly shaped head. Emotional problems and anxieties that often cause less desirable behavior traits to gain the upper hand. It's so vague. We're looking for Lillian's children, but over the next few hours, we see a dozen other kids. Trevor, Gwen, Debbie, Ricky. Their names are pseudonyms, but these are real children. As I look at their faces, I wonder, have they gone through the same things as Cleo and her siblings? How many of their parents or grandparents survived residential schools? Are they still scarred by the trauma they suffered as children? We scroll through seven months of AIM ads, but none of them look like Lillian's kids, and we're running out of possible dates. We think the meeting with the minister was in April. We've looked at September, October, November, December, January, February, March. I'm not quite finished March. Almost finished March. And so this is kind of like the last month. I hope we find something. Oh my gosh. I think 
I think this is, I think this is them. That looks so much like them. That's on the next Missing and Murdered. Finding Cleo is written and hosted by me, Connie Walker. It's produced by Marnie Luke and Jennifer Fowler. Mika Anderson is our audio producer, and our senior producer is Heather Evans. To see some of the Adopt Indian and Métis ads and documents from the Provincial Archives of Saskatchewan, visit our website. It's cbc.ca slash findingcleo. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.